Hello, suave simians of the world, and welcome back to Puzzle Monkey. How's everyone getting on? I'm pretty gassed, if I'm honest, because we've crossed the 300 download mark for the podcast. Thank you again. I feel like I'm saying this every single podcast, but I'm going to keep saying it. Thank you so much for tuning in, sharing, and let's keep this ball rolling. I hope you're enjoying the bouncing around between these different topics and that it isn't too disorienting for you. And today we're going to dive back, I guess, into the world of the environment, but this time with a bit of an extraterrestrial element. You see, all this talk of different fascinating points in history that we've already discussed on this podcast makes me think about how we actually construct the past. This podcast episode is about how we build an image of what came before us and how these images and the narratives that we build around them take root in our collective culture. And from this platform, let's call it, I also want to ask a pretty deep and potentially dark question. I want to ask, what evidence, what artifacts will we as the human race leave behind on Earth for whatever next species inherits it? And what narratives will they create to explain our existence? In other words, what is the everlasting story of humankind? I got thinking about these questions when I was reading about the Burgess Shale in the Canadian Rockies. You see, I'm training to be a geography teacher, so I've got to get up to date with all that sexy geological goodness. Can't believe I've just outed myself on the podcast. Well, there you go. Let's call it an exclusive. Anyway, the Burgess Shale is a huge outcrop of rock that contains exceptionally detailed preservations of fossils from about 500 million years ago. And when he came across the shale in 1909, Charles Walcott discovered a huge range of bizarre-looking organisms, the vast majority of which were previously completely unknown to science. Take the Oppenbinia, for example, an underwater arthropod with a snout like a vacuum and possessing five eyes. It kind of looks like something out of Men in Black, or something you'd find in the depths of the Mersey. Either way, the discovery of these perfectly preserved fossils utterly changed the way in which we perceived, and therefore understand, this period of Earth's history, the Cambrian. It gave us a window into a world that appears distinctly different from the one we inhabit now, and considering the state of some of these animals, I'm pretty bloody thankful. So after getting acquainted with this part of the curriculum, I asked myself, what would our Burgess Shale look like? Let's say aliens finally turn up on Earth after the flames of human civilization have flickered and failed, or we've just jetted off to conquer some other far-flung part of the solar system. And of course they turn up after we've buggered off. Typical extraterrestrials come into our solar system, our planet, taking all our biomes for themselves after we've gone. All jokes and terribly accurate accents aside, what evidence of our present epoch would these little alien critters come across? Well, in order to answer this question, we have to familiarise ourselves with this term, the Anthropocene. Now, you may have heard it. It's becoming increasingly popular in pretty much everyone's vernacular. It's a term that was originally coined by Earth scientists to mark a new era in history, in which human impact on the Earth has been so dramatic that humanity itself, the Anthropos, must be considered a geological force in its own right. But when do we become this geological force? 
of course the answer is disputed. The most common suggestion is the industrial revolutions of the 19th century. Think of the satanic mills of Manchester gushing out smog at a disturbing rate. But some would go back further to the creation of the atmospheric engine in the early 18th century, which actually allowed us to harness steam to power machinery. Without this invention, there wouldn't have even been an industrial revolution. But I suppose, just to be cheeky, you could go back even further to the advent of agriculture 12,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, where modes of living shifted from primarily nomadic hunter-gathering to sedentism. Now look, it's obviously impossible to say that this was the precise moment humans began to change the geology of the Earth. You can't really say that, well, it was the 23rd of June, 1600 BC, that me and the boys became a geological force. That being said... Of all the events that we know of in our 300,000-year-old existence as a species, the agricultural revolution perhaps does mark the moment we began to leave an indelible mark on our surroundings. It arguably created the very social structures based on surplus and social stratification that would in the future allow us to industrialise in the extreme manner that we have. Anyway, regardless of its lineage and pedigree, The Anthropocene concept has become a bit of a meme in our culture. It's a buzzword used by climate change scientists, politicians and activists alike. You can also see it being used clearly within David Attenborough's more recent work. If you look and listen closely, the concept tends to come at the end of a series when the focus shifts from the images of the marvels of the non-human world, the colours, the sounds, the birds of paradise and all that, to terrifying shots of petrochemical plants, overcrowded slums and deforestation from every possible angle. Images that perhaps represent the legacy of human civilization, and dubbed over these grim visualizations is David's glorious voice telling us that unless we change our overconsumptive ways and shift over to renewable energy sources, Mother Nature, Gaia herself, will be utterly destroyed. Now, I absolutely love David Attenborough. Who's done more to promote the majesty of planet Earth than him? However, whilst this message to collectively try and turn this ship around and change our ways for the sake of future generations definitely creates that kind of warm and fuzzy feeling in one's belly, I do think that there is an issue of unknowingly employing the rhetoric of we're all in this together. Because as much as I love the high school musical franchise, This statement appears to suggest that we've all equally contributed to the environmental destruction that is captured so horrifically in David's documentaries. If we are all in this together, then you'd perhaps be led to believe that the indigenous peoples of the Arctic are equally as responsible for climate breakdown as members of the oil oligarchy, for example the Koch brothers or the heads of Saudi Aramco, which would obviously be a load of bollocks. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to take personal responsibility for our environmental behaviours. After all, the microphone I'm speaking into is probably partly made from the very oil that these lads peddle for a living. But we do need to recognise that 100 companies were responsible for 71% of global emissions in 2017. Let that sink in. 
And this is the reason I can get a little bit crabby with the Paris Climate Agreement, because it seems to shift the responsibility to reduce carbon onto nations and kind of cast citizens as the problem. Would it not be far more effective if you really wanted to depart from the status quo and create systemic change? to target the masters of industry that are driving the crisis more than anyone else. Now, I'm not saying we need to get on the berets and brush the cobwebs off the guillotines, but we do need to put our spectacles on and start tracing the really dirty metabolisms of power and capital that are shaping the biospheric crisis that we're all in together. With this in mind, perhaps we'd be better off replacing the term Anthropocene with the Capitalocene or even the Oligarchocene when describing our current situation. I say this not only because these terms, though impossible to spell, more accurately spotlight which specific systems and organisations we perhaps need to have some stern words with, but also because it is precisely the artefacts created by the petrochemical oligarchy, the arms industry, corporate agriculture and many others that will stand the test of time, preserved within clumps of rock like the Burgess Shale in British Columbia. You see, the aliens won't find the cultural marvels of the Anthropos, the ancient sites, the skyscrapers, the football stadiums, not even the pubs. Over time, these manifestations of humankind will be almost entirely wiped clean from Earth's physical hard drive. What the aliens will find include a smorgasbord of plastic pollution, soot from power stations, radioactive elements, and the discarded bones of the domestic broiler chicken, the bodies of whom we consume at a rate of 60 billion per year. This, my friends, is our legacy. Welcome to the Anthropo-Obscene. As depressing as this is, it does kind of make you wonder what conclusions the aliens would come to about what life must have looked like during our epoch. Although by the looks of it, maybe it was never our epoch at all. Would the pervasive theory amongst alien anthropologists be that a small, decrepit, flightless bird once ruled the planet, making countless ethogies to its deity, the all-seeing, all-knowing and all-powerful plastic bag? Perhaps they would look at the radioactive waste created by nuclear explosions and deduce that this is why the species and life itself on this strange planet died out. Or maybe in the same way that we construct conspiracy theories about structures such as the pyramids of Giza, the aliens would deduce that the technology required to create all this soot and radioactive waste could not have been manufactured by a chicken wing alone. Perhaps they would posit that these waste products were clear evidence of the existence of a more intelligent species, culture, or even deity that endowed these flightless cluckers with technology or knowledge beyond planet Earth. What this episode illustrates is that empires always fall. History is literally littered with examples of civilizations that felt they would outlast time itself. The Nazis, after all, barely started their Tausendjähriges Reich, their Thousand-Year Reich. It may also confront us with the fact that we might not like what the remnants of our own civilization might look like in millions of years' time. I think most people would prefer the human race to be remembered for its art, literature, music, and even technology, rather than its insatiable love for cheap flesh. However, 
Perhaps preference here is an illusion. Perhaps the chicken bone is the most perversely fitting totem of the Anthropocene. Maybe it tells our story perfectly. And here I can't help but be reminded of Percy Bysshe Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, a treatise on the ego and hubris of mankind. It goes something like this. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What I really love about this poem is that it illustrates this feeling that I think all of us have, that our civilization is going to be different. Present civilization isn't going to make the mistakes of the past. It's somehow qualitatively different. Whereas in reality, we're all Ozymandias. All of our civilizations will eventually fall. And all of our monuments, all of our effigies to power and control will eventually join those sands that stretch into the distance. Does this have to be such a truly terrifying prospect? Perhaps it illustrates the fragility of civilization and the fragility of people who make up those civilizations. Maybe like the visceral image of the bust of Ozymandias lying in ruins, the image of the piles of chicken bones can be a catalyst for us to realize that our civilizations are not infinite and that we need to both individually and collectively get our shit together and stop blindly and uncritically consuming the artifacts of the anthropo-obscene. And with that bizarre call to arms, I'm going to call it a day for this episode of the podcast. Bit of a shorter episode this one, but I hope it packed the same punch. As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope everything is okay with you and that things are getting a little bit easier as the nights become a little bit lighter. If you haven't joined the Puzzle Monkey Facebook group, then get on it now. It's Puzzle Monkey Podcast. And please also join the Instagram page, which is puzzledmonkey underscore podcast. Also, if you're listening to the podcast on Spotify, then please press the follow button. It means that I get a bit more exposure for the podcast. And for you, it means that new episodes of the podcast will appear on your homepage without even having to type it in on Spotify. Christ, what a luxurious time we live in. What can you expect next week? Well, as the one month anniversary of the podcast, I'm going to deliver you a particularly hot take. And it's on how you can trace the evolution of persecution through acts of self-immolation probably shouldn't have used the term hot take there. I'm sure I'll pay for that in the future. Anyway, peace and love to all. Thanks a million for listening. Look after yourselves. And yeah, ta-ra.